Well, I asked her to read that story because it connects with the story that we're going to share from the Scriptures today. So again, if you have a Bible, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. That story is repeated in Matthew and in Mark, um, and we're going to pick up a portion of it in Luke 18. We have been working through this series called Talking with God, the Ancient Art of Prayer. And it's really been perfect timing for us, as many of us have been sent home, differing levels of social distancing or quarantine. Um, this is a good time to work on our prayer life. So we're thankful that the Lord already had us working on this as a church before all the craziness began to happen. So this week, uh, we are calling it Pray in the Powerlessness. Last week, we talked about um, how to worship in the chaos. This week, we're going to learn how to pray in the powerlessness. And we're going to look at three short stories in Luke chapter 18. Before we read the text, I want to share something that happened to me about 15 years ago. Um, 15 years ago, I was a much younger man. Uh, You might say I was a much more powerful man, a much stronger man 15 years ago. I worked for Temple Bible Church, and one of the other pastors at Temple Bible Church had asked me to help him, using my strength, to move a large item that someone had donated. And so we were going to borrow a big and powerful truck and go to Georgetown and pick up a pool table. Any of you ever played pool? Pool tables are very large. They're very heavy. And this was a genuine slate pool table. There are different qualities of pool table. This is the heaviest kind that you can have. So this was a big slate pool table. We drove to Georgetown to pick it up. Uh, We went upstairs to this family's old home that they were selling to pick up the pool table from their upstairs game room and then move it into our truck. It took all of the power that we had to turn the pool table onto its side. We slid it across the carpet to the edge of the stairs. Even sliding this table was hard. Um, I did some research this week to find out exactly how much a pool table weighs. I just remember that it was incredibly heavy, but I wasn't sure the exact number. I looked it up, and apparently a real slate pool table can weigh between 700 and 1,000 pounds. So just to make the story more interesting, let's say it weighed 1,000 pounds, okay? Um, So we slid barely this 1,000-pound pool table to the edge of the stairs. Uh, We slid it to the edge, and because I was actually bigger than my friend, it was decided that I would go on the bottom of the pool table as we slid it down the stairs, even sharing the story. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, So I was coiled like a spring underneath this 1,000 pound table at the edge of the stairs. And this brings me to a question I have for you. Have you ever felt completely powerless? Have you ever felt way out of your league, that something was beyond your strength, and that maybe in other circumstances you were powerful and strong, but in this circumstance you were incredibly weak? That's certainly how I felt in that moment. And Jesus has really good things to say to those of us that feel powerless. We find ourselves across the globe in a state of global powerlessness, in a weird situation like nothing most of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. And so I think these are perfect words for us, teaching us to pray in the powerlessness. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Other translations would say, and not give up. Verse 2, he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus speaking to us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to receive it. Help us to listen. Help us to open our ears to hear what you have to say, Lord. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the text and we think about what it means to pray in the powerlessness, I see three ideas from the three little stories that we see here from Jesus. One is that powerless prayers, and I mean this people who pray, a prayer, powerless prayers keep asking. And then secondly, we're going to see that powerless prayers admit their sin. And then finally, what we're going to see is that powerless prayers are like children. So first of all, We want to look at this idea that powerless prayers keep asking. We see this in verses 1 through 8. Powerless prayers keep asking. This one's kind of difficult, and there are many other stories like this in the Scriptures where Jesus uses what is called a uh, lesser to the greater argument. So this is a common argument style of the first century where Jesus basically says, if this bad person can do a good thing, how much more the perfect holy God of the universe? That's the basic argument framework. And he uses, uses it here with an unrighteous judge. So he says in verse 1, he was telling them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the way I'm summarizing that is keep praying, keep asking. The word prayer, pray, literally means to ask. It means when we come to God with an asking heart. And so Jesus is saying, keep asking. Don't give up. And there's this background to what he's charging us with, and that is there are going to be moments when we're not getting what we've asked for, and he's saying, keep asking. There are going to be times that we live through where we are longing and aching, as Romans 8 describes. We're 
We're just aching. We're longing for everything to be fixed and right. And so if we have faith in Jesus now, we know a restored relationship with God. Now we know peace with God. Now we know forgiveness. Now we know a new forgiveness and power over sin that we didn't have before. But we still long to live in a world that's, that's done with disease. And we're not there yet. And so Jesus is saying, as you're aching and longing through these difficulties, injustices, disease, disaster, as you're aching through these things, don't give up. Always pray. Do not lose heart. Keep asking. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So what's assumed in the story here is that she's a widow who's being treated wrongly by someone. And so the widow has to go to the judge to get help like calling the police when someone's mistreating you. So she's going to the judge, but in this situation, he's an unrighteous judge. He's the kind of judge that doesn't seem to care. Verse four, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So so here's the picture is this judge is just getting annoyed by her asking and asking and asking for help. And like I said, this is a little confusing to us when we first read these arguments, but Jesus uses this style of argument many times throughout the scriptures. It's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this unrighteous person does the right thing in the end, how much more will the holy God of the universe do the right thing and protect those who need his help? So in verse five, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, his chosen, those that are dear to him? Will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's Jesus' final charge to us from the story. He's saying, know that God will give justice to his elect, to his chosen ones, to his dear ones. Another way we describe this in the Bible, the chosen ones, the elect, is the children of God. John 1, it says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh or a husband's will, but born of God. So if you have faith in Jesus, you are his chosen, you're his elect. And Jesus here is promising that he will give you justice. He will take care of you. And so Jesus is saying he will, and it will seem like a long delay, but he will come and he will actually come speedily. And so of course, we've got a whole problem here of of relativity. What seems slow to us, Jesus is promising is is actually God's going to come quickly in his justice. Yet will he find faith on earth. Yet will he find faith on earth. Will will we trust him? Will we trust that he's coming? Will we long for his return? Will we keep asking? I found an old picture, an old print from a book. It's public domain, so this shouldn't get knocked off the internet. Um, This is an old print of the widow asking the judge for help. And you see the posture of bowing, asking. And this reminds me that we should keep bowing, asking, pleading with God. God, help me. God, help me. We continue to go to him. A beautiful picture of this is Psalm 69. Save me, O God. I am weary with my crying out. Have you given up? Or are you continuing to ask? 
To keep asking is to be a person of faith. It's to say that in the powerlessness, God is the only true power that matters. And so if we're going to be praying people, and if we're going to pray in the powerlessness that we're feeling right now, we're going to keep asking God for his help. If you feel distant from God right now, I want to encourage you to keep asking. Jesus says, keep asking. Do not lose heart. If your mind wanders when you pray, keep asking. Keep coming back to him. Admit you're wandering and keep coming back to God. If you doubt the speed of his response, Jesus says, keep asking. He, he will come for us. He will help us. Another encouragement is from Romans 8, which I said already, talks about the longing and the ache we have for this justice, for this help to come. And in Romans 8.26, Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness or powerlessness. The Spirit helps us in our powerlessness for we do, do not know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so Paul is saying, in your powerlessness, in my powerlessness, as we continue to pray, we're going to find that even the Spirit will give us the words to say, even when we don't know what to do. So keep asking. A powerless prayer keeps asking. The next thing we're going to see is that a powerless prayer admits sin. Powerless prayers admit their sin. There's a wrong idea going around with a lot of folks. They believe that Christians and churches are gatherings of people who believe they've got it all together, that they are good and righteous and they don't have anything wrong with them. When the New Testament defines it exactly in the opposite from that. That those who are followers of Jesus, those who are Christians, those who belong to Jesus are the ones who admit that they're broken. They admit their neediness. They admit their powerlessness. And specifically, they admit their sin. Romans 3.23 defines sin as falling short of the glory of God. And so the question as we read this little story is, have you come to that place of recognizing that you don't always love others as you should, that you are not always just and righteous as you should be, that you don't always stand for what is beautiful and true and serve others in kindness and joy. If that's true, we define that as sin, falling short of, of the glory, the beauty, and the awesome perfection of our holy God. And so we pick this story up in verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable, this story, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Particularly, he's going to describe the word Pharisee. A Pharisee was a religious leader, a Bible teacher of Jesus' day. And so these were people who knew God's word, but they trusted in themselves. They thought that they were saved by their knowledge of Scripture and by their own personal righteousness. And Jesus is going to say that's not how it works. So he says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. In this day and time, a tax collector was someone who had betrayed their country and it was basically like a mafia figure, someone who stole from others, someone who was definitely, clearly, and publicly unrighteous. So the Pharisee, the one that people considered publicly righteous, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He points to the unrighteous tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so this is the person who thinks they're righteous, who thinks that they really don't need God's grace because they're actually already good. He's saying, God, thanks that I'm so good. <laughs> is that you? Or are you more like the tax collector? Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To beat your breast in this day and time was, was an expression of sadness and grief. The tax collector was broken and sad over his sin. How far he had fallen short of God's glory, his beauty, his righteousness. Verse 14, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the one that admitted his sin, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says there are two ways here essentially to approach God. One is to say, God, I'm good in and of myself. And so I don't really need your grace or your forgiveness. The other says, God, I'm a sinner. I repent. Repent means to turn away from your sin. I I turn from my sin and I trust in you as my only hope to forgive me. God, have mercy on me. Which is your prayer? God, thanks that I don't need you? Or is your prayer, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's a question that we need to be asking ourselves. Now, it's interesting right now, I want to take a little detour and answer a question that a lot of people have been asking. Is a worldwide global pandemic a specific indictment about specific sins that we need to repent of? Jesus actually answered a very similar question in Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, there was talk about a local disaster that had taken place. People had been murdered by King Herod and then other people had had a tower fall on them. And Jesus says this in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The question is, do you think these people were worse sinners than the other? That's the question that was going around. Jesus says, no, they weren't any worse than the other sinners. Jesus' point is this, we're all sinners. We all have to repent. If we don't repent, we'll perish. What is he saying? He's saying, all of us are in the situation Uh, Some more publicly than others, right? Some more uh, largely or more uh, visibly than others, but all of us are sinners. So some people we look at and say, oh, that's an obvious sinner. Other people we look at and go, oh, that's a pretty good person. Jesus says we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. So we need to be very careful when a disaster or a difficulty or a disease strikes not to say, I can speak for God and know what's going on here. When we look at the big picture of the Bible, we would say that really the world is broken because of our sin. Sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's indirect, but we all have to repent. We all have to say, I'm a sinner. We all have to say, like the tax collector in the story in Luke 18, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Is that your prayer? I have a chart here that we found really helpful over the years. It's in several different books. Paul Miller came up with this chart. um, And the chart shows the gap between God's holiness, his glory, his righteousness at the top line, and our knowledge of our own sinfulness at the bottom line. And to meet Jesus, to begin walking with Christ, to begin entrusting yourself to Jesus instead of trusting your own sin, is to say, I recognize that there's a gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness, and that only Jesus can fill that gap. The beauty of this chart is it shows that 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 gap continues to grow. The, The gap is always there. It's not like the gap actually gets bigger necessarily. It's just our awareness of the gap becomes more real. As you mature, you become more amazed 
at God's perfect holiness. And as you mature, you come to realize how deep down your sinfulness goes. That your sinfulness is not just a few surface things you got caught doing, but your sinfulness is actually a state of your own heart. That you don't love people and, and rejoice in God the way that God built you. And so as that gap of awareness grows, as we see God more and more as, as holy and glorious and perfect, and as we see ourselves more and more just falling short and not having it all together, we recognize more and more how big Jesus is, how great the cross is, how wonderful it is that God would send Jesus to take our sins upon himself and to give us his perfect righteousness. So I want to encourage you to recognize the truth here. This is an important thing for us to see and believe that we are sinners, that God is holy, and that people that live today during a global pandemic don't need to repent any more than people that lived 20 years ago through some other disaster. We all need to repent. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. As Paul summarizes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Paul is saying that in Romans 3, this is following a long argument where he says, yeah, there are obvious sinners in chapter 1, that just sin in obvious grotesque ways, and then there are less obvious sinners that are religious people that seem to hide their sin pretty well. He says, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. So what's the alternative to admitting that before God? What's the alternative to praying this prayer? Well, I I think there are actually two ways that we can play the role of the Pharisee. The one is the obvious religious leader role, right? Where you say, I'm really religious. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those bad people. But in our culture, there's another funny twist on that, and that's the kind of romantic ideal. And that's the, I follow my own heart, I'm true to myself, I'm authentic, and therefore I find salvation in that. It's another way of saying, I'm self-righteous and I don't need forgiveness and salvation from God. So whether you go the traditional route of religion, God thanks that I don't need you because I'm so good, or you go the less traditional route of the romantic ideal of, I'm following my own heart. I'm true to myself. I'm authentic. Therefore, I don't even believe in sin and I don't need salvation. Either way, you're believing in your own self-righteousness. Jesus says, I've come for you. You're not enough on your own, but I love you so much that I'm giving myself for you. And so there's this incredible love that overcomes our sin and our proper prayer is to admit that sin. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He will. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pray that prayer. That's a great prayer that we can continue to pray in our powerlessness. The last thing we'll see is that powerless prayers are like children. And this goes back to the story that my wife read at the very beginning, which kind of combined some of the stories from Matthew, Mark, and Luke together. Jesus often would point to, Jesus, uh, point to children as an illustration of how we should come to him. And also, just to be clear, Jesus knew that children could sin, right? What he's talking about is their frailness, their smallness, their neediness, their ability to just come to God and say, or come to a parent and just say, I need something, right? And he says, that's how we should come to God. A powerless prayer should be like a child. So we pick this up in verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And so you see this in many different cultures, um, conferring a blessing through prayer and touching and laying on hands and blessing people in this way. And so they're bringing their kids to Jesus to be blessed. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Why do you think they rebuked them? Well, well, the disciples thought Jesus was too busy 
and he didn't have time for unimportant little people. And Jesus said, no, you, you got this completely backwards. But Jesus called to them, called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And Jesus is saying here that we have to come humbly. If we want to be a prayer, someone who prays in the powerlessness, we have to recognize that we're like a little child, that we're not as strong as we thought. We're not as powerful as we thought we were. And so this is a call for us to humble ourselves. Um, We've been saying throughout this prayer series that we recommended different um, prayer helps. We've got two books on prayer here, Praying Backwards by Brian Chappell, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And I'm going to quote some really helpful stuff about uh, praying like a child from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. I also want to continue to encourage you to download the Resurrection Prayer Guide as we continue to pray through that together. Those are really short scriptures and prayers that you can pray even with your young children together as well. Uh, But there's a great quote in Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, that says this. It's page 79 in my older book. It's page 65 in the newer book. It says this, to be cynical is to be distant. To be cynical is to be distant. Now, Paul Miller in his book is defining cynicism as the opposite of being a child in your prayer. So he's saying our age is a very cynical age. He also says, because cynicism thinks that it sees what is really going on, it feels real and authentic. And that gives cynicism an elite status since authenticity is one of the last remaining public virtues in our age. So here's my question for you. Do you come to God like a little child in awe, wonder, and naive weakness? Or do you approach your prayer life with cynicism? Do you see through things? So Miller goes on. He says, A praying life is just the opposite of this cynicism. It engages evil and it doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, and asking. Prayer is feisty. I love that quote. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. It is passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It is without hope. Again, do you approach God with cynicism or with a childlike faith? Do you come with open arms? Do you long to know Him? Do you long to see Him? Do you come expectantly? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, talks about this struggle we have of always seeing through things. This is what cynicism is, and Miller quotes this as well. Lewis says, You cannot go on explaining away forever. You find that you've explained explanation itself away. You cannot go go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Lewis is saying, yeah, of course, you got to see through some things, right? Some things are a sham. Some things are a scam. Some things are a lie. And you got to see through those things to see the truth. But one of the problems with our age is a growing cynicism 
an increasing cynicism that, that sees through everything. And so we're challenged by Jesus. We're challenged by Paul Miller. We're challenged by C.S. Lewis to come to God as a little child. I grabbed a picture here of a couple of little kids looking through a window. And I love this picture because it combines kind of the two images, right? Um, seeing through things. They're smart enough to see through the window, right? They're not distracted by the specks and the marks on the window and studying those. They're looking through at something else that's bringing them joy. I don't know what it is they're looking at, but they're looking at something and they're smiling. And so we have the two ideas, seeing through things. The cynic sees through everything. But then we've got the idea of a child with joy, seeing something that they love. And we're called on to come like little children to God. One of the most wonderful things about being with children is their fresh view of everything. I don't know how many of you are parents or how many of you are aunts and uncles. I want to encourage you, even if you're not an aunt and uncle or you're not a parent, spend time with children just for the sake of learning some of these things that Jesus is talking about. Um, children see everything new. It's easy to get bored with pill bugs in the dirt when you're grown up. But when a little child discovers them, it's the most amazing thing in the world. It can even get, I know this sounds crazy, you can even get bored with ice cream, right? But to see how much a child loves ice cream and discovers it for the first time is so amazing. We can become cynical, bored, uh, no longer impressed with things like the moon and the stars, but to see a little child light up when they see the moon or they see the stars. There's this kind of wonder. And we're called on to come to the Lord like little children. Jesus says, we welcome children, adults, we welcome children because the kingdom is for the humble. And so it's this beautiful sign. On the one hand, he's telling us as adults to come to him like children. On the other hand, he's saying a mark of God's people will be to be the kind of people that honor, respect, and love children and welcome them in the name of Christ. So my question for you, is that, is that who you are? One of the crazy things that's going on right now is a lot of families, because of the closure of schools, are spending way more time with their children than they ever have before. And Jesus knows it's hard. There are other illustrations where Jesus talks about how difficult children can be. It's not like Jesus doesn't understand that kids can be sinners too. But he says that a mark of being a believer, a truster, someone who prays in the powerlessness, someone who comes to God by faith is, is to be someone who welcomes children. It's to be someone who honors children. And so we're called on to love them, to welcome our own kids as a gift, to welcome other children as a blessing, to serve kids in our church and in the community. Here's the thing. Uh, Sunday schools and youth sports will rise again, Right? Someday, all this craziness is going to be over, and you're going to have opportunities once again to, to coach little kids, to tutor children, to teach in Sunday school. And I want to encourage you to see that as a, as a glorious opportunity to show a Christ-like attitude, and also an opportunity for you to learn and for me to learn. Because when we spend time with children, we see this living illustration that, that Jesus gave us to, to see what it means to be someone humble who comes to God, powerless. Do you recognize your powerlessness? And does that affect the way that you pray to God? And does it affect the way that you treat others who are powerless? Children, those who are weak, those who struggle in any way. Well, I'm going to wrap up 
here. We are called to pray in the powerlessness. I started with the story about me and my friend moving the 1,000-pound table. Like, like I said, maybe it was 700, but we'll just say 1,000 pounds. We had barely slid it to the edge. We had gotten this 1,000-pound pool table to the edge. We got about a third of it slid over the edge of the stairs, and, and I was underneath it. Um, and in that moment, there's some things that kind of flashed into my mind uh, before that 1,000-pound table rocketed down the stairs on me. I thought about my wife, and I thought about my three small children. And in that moment of clarity, I realized, you know what? My pride has gotten me this far. My confidence in my flesh has gotten me to where one-third of a thousand-pound table is hanging over the edge, and I'm about to get crushed and killed. And in that moment, I had to admit my powerlessness. In that moment, I just had to wave the white flag and say, dude, I can't, I can't do this. This thing's going to kill me. I, I cannot do this. I cried out for help. I cried out in my powerlessness. Turns out three days later, my friend came back with five college men and they barely got it into the truck. So apparently I made the right decision. Well, this reminds me of, of one more cross-reference and we'll end with this as we think about praying in the powerlessness. The Apostle Paul had been afflicted with what he called a thorn in the flesh, a difficulty, a temptation, a struggle. We're not sure if it was a particular temptation to sin or if it was a particular physical ailment, but it was this difficulty and this pain that he struggled with. And he continued to plead with God to take it from him. And this was God's answer to him. God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you hear that? God's power is actually perfected through our powerlessness. So Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's saying, when we are spiritually strong, as he says in Philippians, when, when we truly know the power of his resurrection is when we're living by faith in the midst of our powerlessness. So that's where I want to end. I want to end with us remembering that God is good. He's shown grace to us in Jesus. And because of that, we can pray and act in a world where we feel powerless, trusting that God's power can work through us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have given us unlimited resurrection power through Jesus. And that because of that, we can live with a certain confidence, even in the midst of disease and difficulty and confusion and disaster. God, help us to be a praying people. Continue to develop us. Uh, show us practical steps that we can take to serve others in the midst of the confusion, but also help us to continue to keep asking, to keep praying to you, Lord. Help us to continue to admit our sin and our need of you and your grace and help us to come to you like children. To have a humility, a weakness, a sense of awe at your power and your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.